0: Hey! I tell you what, this is—I love this church. Um, hey, it's so good to be with you. If you all are here for the first time, I'm going to introduce myself. My name is Brad Herndon. I'm one of the other lead pastors, and uh, I focus on communities and discipleship, which is why uh, this has been some exciting things happening in our atrium over the past few weeks. We've been trying to help our big church feel small through some meetups because we don't. One of our dreams that we that we have as a church is that we aren't just a church that's easy to come to, but we're a church that's easy to connect at and to be a part of. And so uh, every week we've been helping people meet up around other people who share a similar interest. And so we've had our 20-somethings meet up a couple weeks ago. You guys brought it with some great energy, connection, meeting one another. Last week we had our 30-somethings. You brought all your kids with you, which was fun. And uh, we saw that you all need a nap and some more dates Uh, but thanks for coming. You also took things up a notch over there in the hub with some Casey's breakfast pizza, which is my new favorite part of living in Kansas City. I did not know that before. Today, the 40-somethings, we invite you after the service. uh, Just go get to meet some other 40-somethings. And I know that they took it up a notch by curating one of the best 80s playlists that we'll be playing during that meetup (laughs) back there. So make sure you take advantage of that. Can't wait to see what the 50-somethings are gonna be bringing in a couple weeks. But uh, hey, if you're jumping in with us, Uh, We're in a series called Monumental Building God-Sized Dreams. And uh, make sure you go back. If you missed a week or you're just starting out with us right now, you're watching online, make sure you go back and pick up on some of the story that we've been uh, learning about uh, from the book of Nehemiah. And also, if you're looking to go a step further, every Wednesday night I invite you to join me and our other pastors and so many people from Heartland at Midweek, which has been an opportunity for us to take these messages one step further in conversation with one another as we learn more about Nehemiah and more about how do we apply these things into our lives. And it's just a casual relational study. You can show up in the garage 630 or online as well. You can be part of that experience. You can find out more online. But we've been kind of walking through this, this memoir of Nehemiah's that was written about 2,700 years ago. We find it deep in the Old Testament. And we learn about Nehemiah's monumental dream uh, while, while he's over in Persia, he this this dream to return to his homeland of Jerusalem and to rebuild this wall that was there to protect Jerusalem from its enemies, but to, to hear that it was in ruins. And so he has this monumental dream to rebuild it. And we, we've so far, we've learned about his monumental boldness going before the king of Persia and saying, would you, would you allow me to go back? Would you bless this journey and this project really of an enemy city of yours? And we've learned about his monumental prayerfulness and his dependence upon God to do what only God can do. We've learned about his monumental leadership as he rallies a community around this important project for the good of one another. Last week, we learned about his monumental resilience and strength and courage in the face of enemies, trying, really, really giving him death threats if he continues this project of rebuilding the wall. And today we're going to get to learn about something else about Nehemiah, and it shows up in chapter 5, so if you like following along, you can turn on your phone, you open up a Bible, and uh, there's a verse, kind of six six verses into chapter 5 that shows us something about Nehemiah as we get to know him. Uh, He writes in this memoir that as the people were building the wall, I became very angry. I became very angry. Now hold on to this verse for a second because we're going to learn a lot more about this anger and why Nehemiah is angry. Today I want to talk about anger. Like for one, because if there is one way to get to know someone, like we're trying to get to know Nehemiah, one of the best ways we can get to know someone is to know what makes them angry, isn't it? And to know how they handle their anger. And so we're going to get to look at that because anger was part of Nehemiah's story. But it's also part of our story too. Now, as I say that, you may be thinking to yourself, but Brad, yeah, that's fine. I'm not that angry of a person. You know, maybe, maybe you think, I'm not angry. I might get a little mad sometimes, sure. You know, who doesn't? Maybe a little bitter, frustrated, stressed out, you know, sure. But, but angry, I'm not, I'm not an angry person. And I wouldn't argue with you because I like to think that I'm not an angry person either. I remember when Allison, my wife, and I were having our first child. So this was about 13, 14 years ago. Um, And a friend of mine found out that we learned that we were going to be having a baby, and they were kind of a few years into the parenting journey. And and he said, he's like, hey man, that's so awesome that you guys are going to be parents. Just get ready to find out just how angry of a person you really are. (laughs) And I didn't quite know what to do with that. Like Most people say congratulations. and I was like, no, 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 I'm not an angry person. I've never been known for having outbursts. I've never gotten tossed from sports games. I, I, I you know, I didn't, I, I didn't throw many golf clubs or punches. I didn't listen to that much Alanis Morissette or Rage Against the Machine or Beastie, <laughs> Boys. like that wasn't, speaking of playlists, that wasn't my thing. I'm not that angry of a person. And then it was several years later as I was sitting in my counselor's office when he looks at me and says, Brad, You're angry about some things, and that's okay. Let's talk about what those things are, and let's talk about what your relationship with anger is going to be. And that's what I want us to do today, and kind of leverage Nehemiah as a way to talk about this. What's your relationship with anger? What role does anger play in your life? What makes you angry, and what do you do about it when you get angry? And it's a timely message, because I don't think you need me to tell you that it kind of feels like we're living in angry times, that we, we live, as we were talking before the service, it just feels like we're living in an age of outrage. Um, I was reading, you can Google, you can find any number of articles and reports, and one, one researcher from the University of California, just kind of researching this, said we are living in what he called an, angry, an anger incubator over the past few years that we have just noticed kind of in conjunction with COVID, we have noticed all of the unrest that's been happening in our society and all of the, the political tension and all of the social tension, and the economic tension, the racial tension, the COVID tension, the anger that we feel about any number of things, the anger that we feel about masks and vaccines. And just by, just by me mentioning that, I probably made you angry, right? And so, and so, but this didn't just start with COVID. In fact, these same researchers tell us that this level, this escalation of anger that we've been seeing in our society started really 10 or 15 years ago, but the heat really got turned on a few years ago and has been exposing that within you and I, anger has actually risen to the surface and is brimming beneath the surface of our lives in our society, which is why you can pull up to a Starbucks right now and there's a handwritten note by the speaker that says, please remember, there's a human being on the other side of the speaker because that's the level of anger, that's the way that we're responding right now. So we feel that anger simmering in our workplaces. We feel that anger simmering in our households, in our marriages, in our parenting. We feel that anger in our kids' schools. We feel that anger when our team loses three of the first five games of the season. In fact, our staff uh, received a report from a national leader this week that said, uh, if you lead an organization, and they were talking about churches but it kind of applies to organizations, you used to be able, so if you're in schools or businesses, you serve the community in some way, it used to be that you could expect 5% of your organization to be angry with you if you were a leader. And that was kind of a good number. That meant you were doing something right was that 5% of people didn't necessarily agree with you and they were actually angry with you. Now, if that number was like 80%, you're a really bad leader. But but 5%, you were doing a good job. And this report said if you're leading an organization, including churches, it's now common for 20% of your people to be angry with you. That makes me angry. (laughs) Because that means 20% of you are angry with me right now. Um, But what do we do with that anger? What do we do with it when we're on the sidelines of our kids' games, when we get the email from our kids' school? See, we have an anger problem. Now, to be truthful, the problem that we have with anger is not, hear me, is not that we get angry, okay? The problem with our anger is not that we get angry, because anger is not a bad thing by itself. You know, and time and time again, we see in Scripture, we see God and Jesus getting angry. So to call it a sin or bad would be, would be wrong. To dismiss it as, as part of our emotional makeup would be to put a cork in the volcano of ourselves, of our emotions, only to find out that we're missing out on some way that God has created us with the capacity to be angry about some things. So if you have felt anger this week, welcome to the club. You are in the right place. No, our problem with anger is not that we get angry, it's that we don't know what to do with it when we do. It's the way in which we handle it, and you and I all have felt the damaging effects of anger on our lives from those around us. Maybe we have inflicted some of that damage on the people, especially the people closest to us, or even not as we go toe-to-toe with people online on a social media thread that we don't even know about something that a few weeks ago we really didn't even care about or know that much about. No, our problem with anger is that we don't know what makes us angry and we don't know what to do with it when we do. So I want to go back to Nehemiah now in this verse that he became angry and rewind the tape. Go back to the first verse of chapter 5 and find out what led to him getting angry and what we can learn from him. So this is the way the, the passage plays out. So as they're building the wall, he writes, "...about this time some of the men and their wives raised a cry of protest against their fellow Jews." And they were saying, we have such large, large families, we need more food to survive. Now, then he says, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. Now, what's, what's going on here? So there's this situation, is that as the people of Jerusalem are coming together to rebuild these walls, this important kind of community endeavor, uh, the people of Jerusalem really have a choice to make. They have a dilemma. Do they devote their time and energy toward doing the work of rebuilding the walls, or do they use their time and energy to fend for themselves and to do their own work and to, to tend to their fields and to make money and to, and to gather food, things that they need for survival, and they can either do this or they can do this, but it's kind of hard to do both. And to make matters even worse, there's been a famine in the land for quite some time, so there's an immense shortage of food. And the only people who really have access to the food are, are some of the more wealthier parts of Jerusalem, the people, and so they loan these kind of, you have the haves and the have nots, the haves start kind of loaning the food and the money to the have nots to to help them. The problem is that the haves are charging just a significant amount of interest, which which back in this day is is a big time no-no, especially in this particular kind of situation when you're all in this boat in this famine together trying to complete this wall. Not just that, it's such an immense interest that the have nots are having to mortgage their fields And they're even having to sell their own family members back into slavery in order to pay back the richer halves of their society. And so you kind of have this haves, have nots, rich against poor, the the privileged versus the vulnerable, this division, this turmoil. And so then when, when Nehemiah hears about that, he hears the outcries and the complaints and the charges of the have nots, and that's what makes him Angry. Now it would be really easy to believe that Nehemiah is angry because this division, this turmoil, has, has the power to completely thwart this dream of his to rebuild the wall. And that would make me angry too if something got in the way of my dream, of our dream, right? But that's not it at all. That's not actually why Nehemiah is angry. Nehemiah is angry just because of the, the, the division that the people of Jerusalem are experiencing. That there's this, this disunity, that, that there's this exploitation happening among Jerusalem. Nehemiah knows that this situation has the power to leave the people of Jerusalem in just as much of ruins as the walls were when he got there. See, this is the turning point in Nehemiah's memoir. When we begin to realize, maybe Nehemiah begins to realize too, that his monumental dream isn't really about rebuilding a wall at all. His monumental dream is about rebuilding a people. It's not about the wall. It's about the people. And this is a people that God had called out from the earth, that he had commissioned them, named them, called them to faithfulness to him, and they blew it. And they began sinning against one another and against God. And so they begin to scatter across the earth and be taken captive for decades. And now they're returning to Jerusalem and they have the opportunity to once again be the people of God, living in the way that God has called them to on mission, on purpose, with an identity. And the first opportunity that they get, they begin to exploit one another and do the same thing again. Of course, Nehemiah is angry. See, the wall was just a project to accomplish something spiritual in the people of Jerusalem. And that is so like God, to take something physical and to accomplish something spiritual through it. And he does that all the time. I mean, I think about well, you know, 10, 11 years ago as, as this, this church was moving from one location to another location, there was something physical in our mind, in our vision of a building, of a new location. But, but, and, and many of you were there and you were a, you were a part of it or you, know, you were standing outside the, the, the walls of this church. You were marching, you were blindfolded as you were waiting for God to show us where to go. And there was something physical about that season, about a new building, a new campus. And that was important. But the more important the work that God was doing in that season was calling a people together, making them one and uniting them around a purpose and a mission in this world. You felt that if you've ever gone on a mission trip or served in some way, you know, maybe you, you built a home or you painted an orphanage and there was some significant physical work that happened while you did that. But really, when you climbed off that airplane, you got back here in the States, you look back on the work that God did, it wasn't just the orphanage, or the house. It was the work that he did on you. It was the bond you had with those people that you were serving and working with. It was the way that your eyes were open more to who God is and what he wants to do through us. In fact, this past year, last night, uh, we had a chance, the search team that came together, you know, every week for for many, many months just to bathe the search this search process in prayer and to sort through candidates and look for, as we were making the shift as a church from one lead pastor to a team of lead pastors and hiring a couple of new pastors and this team was was doing the work. They were watching uh, sermons, they were looking at resumes, they were doing interviews to try to sort through, you know, the final outcome of having these two new pastors join the team and it was as Tom Bronner called a, a spiritual process with an organizational outcome. And sure, the work was done. I'm glad it was. Uh, But the the, the greater work, as we kind of talked last night and got to experience this community, we look back and any one of the people on this search team would say that the work that God did was a work of pulling this team together, growing together, praying together, becoming one together, watching them and then our staff as well and now our church be reunited as a people, restored together around hope around mission, around purpose in this world. See, God will use physical processes and projects to accomplish spiritual things in our lives if we let him, but if we turn on ourselves like the Israelites did, that unity and purpose will never happen. And so when Nehemiah hears uh, about this turmoil, he gets angry. But in this moment, he, he does some things with his anger to keep it from doing the damage that anger can do. And there's some things that I want to walk us through. And if you're a note taker, uh, you might want to write some things down because this can help you this week. Maybe just write them down for someone else in your life that you're thinking of right now, but really you're writing them down for yourself because they would write down the same things for you as we talk about ways that we can handle our anger. And so uh, four things that Nehemiah does to accomplish, to use his anger to accomplish good in his life and good for the world the way that you and I can too. First thing that Nehemiah does, very simple. Nehemiah admits his anger. He doesn't ignore it. Nehemiah admits his anger. He he doesn't ignore it. The first thing he says is, I became very angry. Notable that he writes this down in his memoir because our tendency with anger can be to ignore it or to pretend that it's not there or to minimize it which is probably because I think we don't really understand what anger is. We think we do. But here's, here's a definition for us to work from. It's that anger is an emotional response to a perceived wrong. Anger is an emotional response to a perceived wrong. Anger is an emotion, we, we get that, we feel anger. But what we need to know is what kind of emotion it is. See, psychologists will tell us there's, there's primary emotions and then there's secondary emotions. Secondary emotions is what, uh, anger is a secondary emotion, which, which means we are actually feeling anger in response to something we felt before anger that we haven't quite pinpointed, that there's something that we peel our anger back, there's something underneath our anger like sadness or like fear or feeling threatened or ashamed or overwhelmed that is coming to the surface as anger. It's like this. I like to think of anger as, as the check engine light on the dashboard of your emotions, Okay, you all know what the check engine light is, right? Yes, Yes. okay, good. Uh, uh, <laughs> that is a, you should find that out if you don't, uh, that it's the check engine light on the dashboard of your emotions. And then and right now, if you have a check engine light on, that's important. The check engine light is basically there to tell you, hey, there's something going on in your engine, and you're going to want to find out what that is. All right, so my tendency with my check engine light is as long as the car is driving still fine, I just keep it on because I know it's gonna cost me money, I have an old car anyway, like, like who cares? Until a few weeks ago when I take my car in because it's not driving anymore the way that it should and the mechanic slaps me on the hand and says, how long has this check engine light been on? And I was like, "Now, oh, three years. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, you know, if you had brought this to a mechanic, Back then, we could have saved your engine a lot of damage. And we could have saved you a lot of money. And I think we do that with our anger too. The check engine light comes on of our anger, but we don't take the time to pop the hood and to find out what it is beneath our anger because it's hard for us to do that. And one way, a very practical way, that we can pop the hood on, our, on the engine of our souls is to invite someone else into the process, which is why I love, one of my favorite things about Heartland is that we have a team of counselors who are here during the week, professionally trained counselors who are here during the week, who are available to meet with any single one of us. You and your, and, and your, your, your spouse, you and your, your kids, or as a family, or as a coworker, worker just, just to help you understand what, what might be beneath the anger, to help you communicate better. And if you want to learn more about that, make sure you jump on our website and find out about how you can take advantage of this team of counselors that are there. You see, when we admit anger it's the first step and it helps us accomplish the second step that we do, that we see Nehemiah do. He he controls his anger before his anger controls him. Nehemiah controls his anger before his anger controls him. See, we've all experienced anger at its worst. And anger at its worst is when we let our anger control us instead of us controlling our anger. Just look at the number of verses uh, in scripture about anger and what they focus on is this idea of controlling your anger. Proverbs in a couple places, 1429 says, people with understanding control their anger, but a fool shows a hot temper. 2911 Proverbs, it says, fools vent their anger, but the wise quickly hold it back. In the New Testament, Paul writing to the Ephesians, to a church, he says, in your anger, do not sin. He doesn't say anger is a sin. He says don't sin in your anger. Then James, the half brother of Jesus, he writes everyone should be slow, should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry. If we the people here in this room and watching online, if we just did that last verse, if we were quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry, That would produce such a monumental change in our own community if we just did that. Slow to become angry and quick to listen. I love, I love, I love how Nehemiah does this. We're going to see in a second. How do we do this? How do we, how do we not let our anger control us? We give it some space. We take a breath. We step out of the room. We go on a walk. Right? We just give it some space. Here's what Nehemiah does. It says in verse 7, right after he says, I became angry, he says, I pondered things in my mind. One of the things that we talk about at midweek is how when we look at different translations, it helps us understand verses in a deeper kind of way. Because when we go back to the original Hebrew, there's different nuances and, and meanings that we want to be able to capture. In some of the other translations, one says, I thought things over. Another one says, I considered these things with care. One says, I turned it over in my mind. My favorite translation of this verse says, I consulted with myself. I need to do that. It says one commentator says, Nehemiah got all his heads together, right? That he, he, he takes time to slow his anger down to make sure he stays in control of it. And because of that, he does this third thing that you and I can learn from too. He becomes aware of his assumptions before he acts on them. Right now, there's a spouse somewhere elbowing the person next to you. He becomes aware of his assumptions uh, before he acts on them. Now, I, you don't need me to tell you what assumptions make of you and me, right? I'm not going to go there, uh, but you might want to Google that if you, if you don't know the reference there. It's, but, but the key is don't make assumptions. It turns out poorly. Um, take this guy. Uh, this, is, this is Danny. This is Danny. Uh, Danny and his girlfriend are on a text thread. His girlfriend texts Danny and says, I'm going to Michael's with Elaine. Danny, feeling a little bit of hurt, says, I'm not at all trying to make you feel guilty, but I wish we were hung out, we hung out more. We used to see each other almost every day, and now that we are dating, it's literally only once a week. Danny, gosh. So he says, All right, fine. Have fun with Michael. I don't know who he is, but I'm sure he's a good guy. I hope. Here's some Midwest passive aggressive things. I hope in the foreseeable future that you'll want to come to my place on a Tuesday. To which his girlfriend responds. You had some Michael's moments in your, in your week? Oh darn, missed that one. Now, fortunately, he didn't, Danny didn't blow up into this emotional kind of outburst of anger, but he learned don't act on your assumptions. And so here's, I wanna walk through what happens whenever, whenever we get angry. If you're wondering uh, why we have this whiteboard, I'm glad it fell this way and not that way, but Corey, nice job with the recovery there, man. Uh, so whenever we feel anger, okay, our anger was triggered by an event. All right, this could be something you heard, something someone said to you, someone cut you off in traffic, you got an email, I don't know what it might be, someone made a decision. This event triggered your anger, right?